Good evening, everyone. Uh, mm -hmm. Welcome back to uh, another fireside chat. And uh, we're, we're very uh, thankful that uh, we can be to get, uh, together again. Uh, to, and we're also thankful that the brothers are able to be with us. So uh, Brother Tom Getz is with us from Dusseldorf, Germany. And Brother Chris Wilde is joining us from Good Elam. And Brother Ron Kangas is joining us from Anaheim, California. So thank you, brothers, for being with, uh, being with us. Uh, as we usually do, uh, we, we have a number of questions uh, that have been put forward. And we'll begin to go through them. Uh, and anyway, we just look to the Lord for his speaking to all of us. Uh, now uh, I'm going to turn it over to Trevor. So we're just going to get started right away for the uh, the 177 early early birds. So uh, we want to we want to ask this question right off the bat, and I want to I want to uh, kind of direct this towards uh, Brother Tom, and this question. Uh, again, uh, the format, if this is your first time coming to one of these fireside chats, the format is we ask the question um, that have, has come in through one of our Google um, uh, anonymous uh, forums that we, we send out. And so this question came in and it says, as I go on with the Lord, I see more and more how my natural man is only fit for death and burial. It feels like he only made me in order to replace me with Christ, which to me sounds like he only loves Christ and not me. So what is the Lord referring to when he tells me that he loves me? I think when the Lord tells you that he loves you, that he, he loves you. Um, I, I think... You know, my first kind of reaction or response to this is, I think there's kind of a mis misconception in the question. You know, I too am quite fearful before the Lord to live in my natural man and to express a natural life and just to live a common good Christian existence. But I also realize that what the Lord would really like to do is that he wants to mingle himself with me. He needs me. He needs the container. He needs the vessel. He wants to make home in me, mingle himself with me. So I'm never really quite gone. Yet I become Tom plus the Lord. You know, the Bible does tell us, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. God loves sinners. He loves mankind, even <coughs> the worst people. In Romans 5, it says that he commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. He loves us to the uttermost. But he also loves Christ. 
And he loves to see Christ making home in us, living in us, living through us. So I, I don't think that the question, I, I, I think that the question maybe uh, is either you or the Lord, and there's kind of no, no in between. But um, the matter of divinity mingled with humanity is just the most precious, most precious thing. And uh, this, is, this is what the Lord wants to see. He wants to live through you. He wants to have access to your being. He wants you to open yourself, allow him to mingle himself with your mind. So it's, it's your mind and him mingled together as one. I believe this is what the Lord likes to see. So he loves you. If he says he loves you, just say amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving me. That would that would be my portion. I don't know, Chris or Brother Ron, if you want to add something. Um, I, I'd like to, I'd just take a brief second, so I leave a good, good amount of time for Ron. But, you know, uh, I, I encountered this quite a bit uh, during those years when I was spending uh, time with uh, ministry leaders and some theologians and, and things like that, that they're not among us, but are open to us. And often they would tell me they really appreciate Watchman Nee's theology because uh, we are replaced, kind of a, the thought of replacement. And that's pretty common thought in Christianity among believers that, you know, and they, they, they have us kind of an understanding that they're, that our natural life is not qualified. And so the thought is that we just get replaced with Christ. And I think that's what maybe you were referring to, Tom, in the question. It seemed to be that kind of, that kind of implication. But we, you know, we've been, we've been helped so much by even Wasmanese ministry and of course, Brother Lee's, but to see that it's not a replacement We're we've been grafted according to Romans 11. You know, we've been grafted into another, we're broken off of a wild olive tree of sick, weak, you know, failing tree. And as a branch, we've been grafted into the vine the divine vine. And so the branch is still us. It's still us. You know, that branch will always retain a, a certain identity of, of us. But what's flowing through the branch, that has changed. Of course, that's a, and that brings us to what you shared, Tom, uh, a kind of a mingled life, two, two, two persons living one life. So we're not eradicated in that sense. Um, so anyway, I'll just add that little bit. Maybe Ron can, can jump in. Yeah, I'd like to just uh, comment on two matters related to this. First, God created us as vessels to contain him and in his image to express him. And when he created human beings, he was happy. He said, very good. But sin as an element entered our being and damaged what God created. 
So this is what happened on the cross and what will happen in the resurrection life. Christ crucified and terminated the old man. He terminated the fallen part of our being. <clears throat> this, <clears throat> excuse me. Just the fallen part redeemed the God-created part. And now that he's living in us as the life-giving spirit, he is uplifting and transforming the redeemed, created part of our humanity. When we are in the New Jerusalem, we will not all be anonymous slabs of Jasper, we will recognize one another. We'll see Paul as Paul and Peter as Peter. And so the Lord loved us when he created us. He loved us when we were sinners to die for us. And now he really loves us who are being mingled with him more and more. So he loves himself. God loves Christ in us, and he loves us in Christ. Now, the second matter, and I hope the one who wrote the question will be really open to this. The question began by saying, the more I know about my natural life and the flesh and the self. I'm concerned about this because there are two ways of knowing this fallen part of our being. And one way leads to life. The other way of knowing leads to inner death. We can know by reading books with a, a keen mind and we agree. Oh, the flesh, yes, the self, oh, the natural man natural constitution, oh, peculiarity, yuck, disposition, all of this. And then we have a kind of self-generated knowledge. Oh, now I know myself. That is not the knowing. The only way we can really know ourselves is in the light of the Lord's manifestation to us. Yeah. Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord. Yeah. Then he realized what he was. Yeah. Daniel chapter 10. The Lord appeared to him. Then he was humbled. So we want to have the knowing that is in the way of life and light. And simultaneously, we will realize more of our fallen condition and also love the Lord, appreciate the Lord, open our being to the Lord, have faith in the Lord, and the outcome is more oneness, more mingling, more growth in life. And so, questioner, I leave you with a word from the one who said he was the greatest sinner, and I agree. Saul of Tarsus wanted to kill us, to destroy the church. He said, 
I was crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. I'm still here, a new me. And the life which I now live, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our dear brother or sister who wrote the question, Christ died for you. He loved you. He didn't just die for an anonymous mass of human beings. He died for all of us. He died for each one of us. And now he's shepherding us on. So be at peace, be encouraged, be joyful. Very good. <clears throat> okay, well, I'm gonna change lanes a little bit because this question's on a, on a completely different note. Um, and this question we wanted to, we wanted to start off uh, kind of going to brother Chris. So this is, this is uh, Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. It talks about Esau despising his birthright and there being no place for repentance for it. If the birthright here is in reference to our kingdom reward, could there be something that we've already done in our past that negates the possibility of that reward for us? I understand that eternally the blood of Jesus covers all our transgression, but could someone who is pursuing the Lord and his kingdom now, in a sense, be doing so in vain based on what has happened in their past? Yeah, Trevor, I can always rely on you to, to throw me the very question that I was least looking forward to. But no, that's not true. Uh, I, I, when I read this question just a little bit ago before we got, came on, looking at these verses, um, I, I, I'll be honest, I'm really looking forward to Ron's supplemental word here uh, to bail to bail me out, but here's my feeble, here's my feeble response, and I would dare not categorize it as an answer. Um, I actually, I do know one little thing, that the part that throws, I think, went through the questioner, and, and I think it's, it's very easy to get stumbled or at least puzzled, it says, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears, that's verse 17. Um, Actually, right before that, he did, it says he desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. Esau was rejected. He found no place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears. There, and this is a part I want to ask Brother Ron to, to set right or wrong. But I know there has been historically some misunderstanding about, or some at least two interpretations of that verse. What was he seeking with tears? I think the first thought when we read it is that he was seeking repentance with tears. 
But another way of reading it, and I think grammatically it would not be incorrect, is that what he was really seeking with tears was the blessing. He wanted the payoff. He wanted the payoff. And there was no uh, effective repentance that could undo what had already been determined and decided. But now, that's maybe theological, and I am kind of curious what the, the right interpretation is there. But regardless of which interpretation you take, I, this is what I want to say to the, to the questioner. Um, the fact that there is things in our past that we just are convinced at various points along the way in our walk with the Lord are just too bad, just too much, just, we just, we just push the Lord too far. There's no way. Probably there's no way. This kind of thought, which is aided and abetted by our friendly enemy, the devil. Whoever wrote this, uh, I don't know, do we know if it was a brother or sister, it doesn't matter. The fact that you have the feeling to ask such a question indicates to me that whatever is in there, whatever is back there, has been thoroughly repented for. Or you wouldn't be here tonight exactly. asking this question. Yes. Yes. So you are not in you are not in Esau's category. He's in another place. For you, there was a place found for repentance. And now you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So in my, in my deepest heart of hearts, I must believe that you have a full opportunity yet to receive your full birthright, as do we all. So just be thankful that the Lord brought you to repentance and be even more thankful that he washed whatever it is completely away in his precious blood to the extent, dear one, that he has forgotten it. So that if you ask him about it again tomorrow, he's going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any memory of that. <clears throat> so we just all come the same way day after day, freshly cleansed, uh, open, receiving our hands out to receive. We have nothing in our hands to offer him, but what he has already accomplished for us. And then we just run with, with those who are running the race before us. And we don't look back. We stretch forward to, 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 to the kingdom and its ultimate reward. And I honestly believe, dear saints, it's there for everyone watching and listening tonight. I'd like to continue. This is a very good start. Um, and this matter has come up in the lives of serious seekers of the Lord a number of times. First, let's consider the context of this verse. The epistle to the Hebrews was written to Jewish believers 
in the church in Jerusalem that were suffering persecution, mm -hmm. having left Judaism and were meeting with the church. And because of the persecution, many were willfully withdrawing and going back. And Paul was pointing out, I'm emphasizing the kingdom truth part was, if you do this, this is a willful action. You will give up the possibility of reigning with Christ in the kingdom. Now with Esau, he willfully exchanged his birthright for some food to eat, some enjoyment. It wasn't just an ordinary failure. He willfully gave it up. And here's an example that actually happened. I was in the meeting when it took place. A sister about 13 years old, uh, sorry, about 17 years old, unusually attractive and therefore many boys pursuing her and she enjoying that. And she openly, but not in a bad spirit, but she openly said, I choose to take the way of enjoying the world now. This is my choice. I know that I will be saved through fire. This is an instance of willfully giving up the promise or the possibility of the kingdom reward for the sake of present enjoyment. And Demas in 1 Timothy 5 was similar. He realized, oh, it's risky, it's costly to follow, to be one with Paul, who's about to be killed. He forsook Paul, then Paul said, because he loved the present age. And so I believe the questioner, I fully agree with Chris, anyone who asks this kind of question is not in that negative situation. Now, another matter, I try to be as brief as possible, but this is a crucial matter. The enemy really attacks especially all of us, especially younger ones, young adults who are consecrated to the Lord, who seek the Lord, who love the Lord. He wants to destroy them one by one. And I'm speaking in principle here. So he, in the time of our weakness, we have a certain failure. And then he comes and says, you did, look what you did. You'll never make it into the kingdom now. It's impossible. So why not just enjoy the world? Okay, we have to grasp something here. In 1 Corinthians, and also in other epistles that he wrote, Paul gave a list of those who will not inherit the kingdom. Adulterers, 
fornicators, blasphemers. He didn't say, if you committed this sin, you are forever excluded. It's when you become a certain kind of person who habitually lives in this, yeah. willfully, you are in grave danger. What sin could be greater trying to murder? Paul was breathing, Saul was breathing out murder, trying to terminate the lives of the believers and destroy the church. But yet, the mercy of God reached him. So I say to the questioner, no, nothing from your past excludes you from being in the kingdom. That has been dealt with, that has been forgiven and forgotten by God. And uh, are we still on? Yep. Yep. Forgiven and forgotten by God. And it and now here you are seeking the Lord, and it's certain our feeling is, I hope that Tom could confirm this, that you are in a very good position to keep seeking the Lord. It's a lie of the enemy to tell you it's pointless. Just settle for the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. Tell him to shut his lying mouth. We silence him, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. You're going to keep running the race with your fellow believers. Amen. Well, yeah, I did want to add something and just a little piece to even strengthen this last point by Brother Ron, that um, especially the young people, this question comes up almost in every uh, Q&R session. And uh, so we know that it's a, it's a big concern that there may be something in our past that is gonna disqualify us forever from the kingdom. And I like to use the example of Peter denying the Lord. And I've done this before where the Lord said, you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. That was serious and Peter did it. He did it, the Lord looked at him he realized what he did. He went out. He wept bitterly. But then sometime later, the Lord met him on the seashore, recovered him, and recovered his function. And he became a top apostle used by the Lord in preaching the gospel and bringing in, the you know, having the keys of the kingdom to bring in both the Jews and the Gentiles. My point is this, is is just to strengthen this, is that the, the accuser of the brothers is always going to sow these kinds of seeds of doubt. And we have to learn uh, that we overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, and we don't love our soul life unto the death. That's his job. His job is to be the accuser, and our job is to hide under the blood. The blood answers every accusation uh, of the enemy before God. 
1 John 1, 7 and 9 tells us that his blood cleanses us from every sin and all unrighteousness. There's nothing that is not resolved by the Lord's blood. And so to be the overcomers today is that we know how to use the blood. We're not perfect. I think we all have things in us that may disqualify us or in our past, but uh, we need to be really good at using the blood and speaking the word Amen. of the truth. Amen. Amen. Uh, and uh, I just, I just admire my wife to the uttermost for this. On a few occasions, after uh, being under some assault by the enemy, she has learned how to Amen. preach to the devil. And uh, uh, she, you know, later she'd come and tell me, you know, what she did. And she didn't even know if it's okay to do that. You know, it seemed kind of, kind of bold, you know, to, you know, tell the devil where he can go. But uh, I thought, my, I need to learn from her how she deals with yeah. these kind of accusations. Right. Uh, you know, Amen. he wants to weaken us. He wants us to stop running. He wants us to give up. It's hopeless. You're a hopeless case. But, you know, I, I just hope we can all be uh, at rest. The door to the kingdom is standing wide open and we should run, run for the, run the race at any cost. Amen. That's my part. Amen. Good. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Uh, I'll just uh, take us on to the next question and, and I'll direct this one first uh, to brother Ron. Uh, the question uh, reads in this way, uh, Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We know that it is only when the Lord returns that there will truly be righteousness and justice and peace established on the earth. Uh, but still, it is troubling to see governmental authorities perpetuate unrighteousness, sometimes toward whole groups of people. Uh, as a believer and one who does hunger and thirst for righteousness, how should I respond to that? Uh, Matthew 5.10 does say, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Uh, peaceful protests have secured a great deal of advance for various uh, noteworthy causes over the years. Is, is this something that a Christian might participate in? Uh, how should a believer conduct himself or herself in an environment of unrighteousness? And maybe this last question sort of sums it up, I guess, but how do you conduct yourself righteously toward people in authority who conduct themselves unrighteously. Okay. Well, there are uh, a few aspects to this question. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, complemented by verse 33. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, I only have a partial understanding of this, and I believe between the three of us, there'll be a fuller response. I'm just opening this up. So on our side, to seek the kingdom is to seek the coming realm of righteousness. So personally, we seek righteousness in every aspect of our living. Now, here we are under an unrighteous government, and that's putting it mildly unrighteous. Well, such a thing existed under Nero when Paul wrote Romans 13. We always recognize and have a submissive attitude toward authority, but we cannot always obey their requirements because they conflict with Christ and the Word of God. And the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s in the U.S. illustrates this. There are unjust laws, racist laws, especially in the South of the United States. And so there are these peaceful protests. We will not and we cannot obey these laws because they're unrighteous. But if you want to put us in jail, put us in jail. So we will not join in any way the rebellious attitude toward any government. We're not rebellious. But we're not going to be like someone said, oh, I just obeyed orders, whatever they were. Now, two other matters. I'll try to be very succinct. The church, the local churches, we have to be clear about this, do not get involved with social movements, with, with politics, as the church. This is an election year in the United States. None of us are going to give messages, you should vote for this person or that person, this party or that party. We are not involved. We will not be mixed. We are seeking the kingdom to come. So the matter is left personally with the believer. If anyone feels that they would like to join a peaceful protest march, you are free to do so. I, as your brother, have no problem with this. This is your personal contribution to testify righteousness. Then the other matter is, and my dear wife and I, in our prayer life together, which is just part of our married life together, it's not a thing, it's just part of our living. We have recently been releasing powerful prayers, even with divine anger, calling on the Lord in his present government to deal with this and that unrighteous thing taking place in the country where I live. We're not just sitting here passive. 
waiting for the age of righteousness to begin. We stand with the righteous God, and he has a government now. And he is executing his government first from the church, and the church needs to pray. And the Lord will hear the prayers. So this is an initial opening to the word. I think I'll pass the baton to Tom. Oh, Lord. You know, um, I, I'm just so thankful that I'm in Germany right now uh, because of the, the chaos that was going on in America was just too much for me. You know, I think we all were just disturbed to the uttermost when that young black man from Houston was, died at the hands of some policemen uh, a month ago, two months ago, when that was, the, which really kind of started this whole thing. But, you know, there, there is a, an authority of darkness that is operating and just wants to cause division and chaos. And uh, I just felt, I mean, I felt personally before the Lord that my responsibility is to pray that I, you know, I, I like to take a walk every morning and in my walk, I just activity, his division, his chaos, his rebellion, and to pray for the Lord's kingdom to come. Uh, you know, the, the Lord's, the so-called Lord's prayer, you know, your name be sanctified, your kingdom come, your will be done. This has been in me for the last two months. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, I would start with, I mean, that's kind of my first point, I think, and uh, I'm not as, as clear. And, but I, let me just testify. The more I looked at the news, the more dead I became. I just got deadened by getting into what was going on, this side and that side and the extremes. And I have, I have no heart for this. I just have no heart for, for this. I know that the only answer is that the Lord could come back and establish his kingdom. A few years ago, when we were reviewing the messages from the life study of Daniel, and we saw that great human image of four different types of kingdoms, and, um, and how we realized that this is a, a picture, a, uh, an example of human government. And you know, 20 or 30 years ago, when this was first released, I couldn't imagine how America would be uh, classified in that great human image. I just, it's just, I was too patriotic. I was too uh, pro-American or too, I, I don't know what to say. But in these recent days, I mean, I'm, I'm very clear. There is no hope for human government. There is no future in human government. There will be a strong man rising up in Europe in the coming years, and he will be a, a wizard. He will be really, really popular and successful 
and everyone will flock to him and love and worship him. And so this is what human government produces. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to get into all of that kind of prophecy stuff, but just to let you know, there is just no, no hope. And so anyway, that's, that's kind of my, my response is that, um, it, and I agree with brother Ron, if, if you ha have a feeling to join a peaceful protest and I, I don't have any problem with that at all. Um, I, uh, anyway, my, my reaction has been a little bit different. Amen. Amen. Um, maybe I will take, I know we've spent a little time on this already, but I'll take a minute or two to comment. Um, because, you know, uh, I've shared before in one of these programs, uh, about my past before I was saved and, you know, I was caught up in, uh, civil unrest and for the most part, peaceful protesting, though I came close to the edge of the of the fire pit a time or two. The Lord by his mercy kept me from over, extending over. And my being, dear saints, was consumed with it. As a young person, as a teenager growing up, I was acutely aware of injustice and unrighteousness uh, to where I became obsessive about it. And even then, uh, it was very evident, you know, to, to my tender young eyes. Of course, the, the unrighteousness that I wasn't so keen about identifying was my own. Um, somehow that, that seemed to be much less important to me than the unrighteousness I could see in this government or that bad cop, or et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so... I pursued it with a lot of energy, a lot of zeal. And when I got saved, to me, all that I got delivered from, um, which there were a lot of other things, but that was the most striking. That was the, that was the one that was most, um, what should I say? It, it had the biggest impact on me because I was so wrapped up. And the Lord, by his mercy, gave me eyes to see what even all of that so-called righteous, peaceful protesting was producing. And sadly, the fruit there was just as corrupt as what we were condemning. So again, I, I, I certainly would be the last one to condemn a, someone who has out of conviction in their heart that the feeling to participate in a peaceful, lawful protest, absolutely. But what I would just say from my experience, dear, dear saint, you know, or saints, um, as a test in the way of testimony, you know, Tom is exactly right. You go back to the good old days, and it's like a rose when you cut it off at first, and there's this beautiful rose in full bloom, and you cut it off and you give it to your wife, and she's so happy, it's so beautiful, it even is fragrant. It's so fresh, maybe there's still dewdrops on the leaves. But you know what? Just wait two days. Just wait two days. America was a wonderful rose, and I think the Lord has used America like no other nation. 
but it's like every other human government. They've all been cut off. They're all a fading flower. And now we're at the stage, it seems like when the petals are falling off, the leaves are drying up, there's no freshness, there's no, there's no blush to the rose. And the point is, that's the destiny of all human government. So we may spend our energy, we may give our heart, we may, we may do all kinds of things to promote a more righteous and just society, and maybe we'll even have a little effect Maybe some, some good could come of it short term. But saints, what's before us, if we just looking at this world situation, the likelihood is there, saints, that the Lord is wanting and preparing to come quickly. And the proof of it is that in the last days, you know, as Tom was referring to this one that's going to appear, the man of lawlessness will be revealed in Second Thessalonians. And even the age of lawlessness will increase. And there's been a restraining hand on the lawlessness, but it feels like, it just feels like, it doesn't matter what your politics are, everyone has the realization that it seems like that restraining hand is coming off and lawlessness is spreading. Certainly it's spreading among those who are not peacefully, lawfully protesting, but are rioting. But even in government, lawlessness is spreading and increasing. Lawlessness is getting more predominant. Saints to the world, that's the most discomfitting notion you can entertain. But to us, that should, that should propel us to run after the Lord even more because it means that the time is growing shorter. Right, right. So rather than give my energy mm -hmm. at this stage in my life to a peaceful protest, to what I could be very sympathetic toward in my, in my natural being and justify it, I would rather give my energy to bring this age to a conclusion, which is the only solution. <laughs> and we may improve human government for a little bit, just in time for the stone cut out without hands to smite it and crush it all. And that would be that would be a terrible shame, saints, if, if instead of devoting ourselves to being in, in the Lord's hand at that time, we would, in a sense, don't misunderstand, waste, waste our time on trying to fix something that has no fix. Anyway, that's my little Amen. supplement. Good, good. good. <laughs> is, is there anything else you, you brothers want to add to this, or should we move on to the next one? Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's great, Brother Tom, because this one's coming to you right now. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Brother Tom this question. Um, I have heard brothers talk about how we can pray for someone and give ground to the enemy in our prayers for further attack on that saint. Can you please elaborate for us and explain to us how this can happen? And also, how we should pray for one another without doing such a thing. Well, uh, this is uh, this is a, this is a good question, and um, uh, I I think I'd like to try to start to say something about this, and I can just give a, a little testimony that uh, it must have been 20, 20 so years ago, twenty or so. 
when uh, we were praying very much for Brother Lee, who was quite ill at the time, and, and he had a terminal disease. And he said something at, in a meeting or in a, a conference or a training or something, if I, my memory serves me right, asking that the brothers and sisters would not do that. And as, uh, as we inquired about that, because it was just like, just like this question, you know, well, then how do you pray for someone? You know, how do you, how do you pray for them? And, um, I, and I, I, I believe this. Um, currently, my wife is, is sick and is dealing with a very serious kind of prognosis. And, uh, we, you know, we have saints, dear saints, lovely saints, precious saints that would come to our house in Texas and would just stand outside social distancing and just pray, Lord, heal so-and-so. Lord, heal so-and-so. Lord, heal her. Heal her. And my wife and I, none of us felt comfortable about this. We didn't, we didn't feel good about that kind of prayer. And uh, there is, there is a, a kind of thought here. And, you know, in, in First Kings, I think it's First Kings or Second Kings 8, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, he, he said, if you pray towards this land, towards this city, and towards this house, May you hear from the heavens an answer. And uh, according to my, my, I guess, limited understanding is this, is that to pray toward the land is to pray toward our experience and enjoyment of the all-inclusive Christ. To pray toward the city is to pray for the Lord's kingdom. And to pray towards this house would be to pray for the building up of the church. In other words, we're directing our prayer not at a person, at a human being, but at God's economy, God's interests, God's purpose. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for people, but we pray for them in that context. And when we just pray for people, sometimes it alerts the enemy and invites the enemy's further attack. And we've also experienced this, that, um, that, you know, just, oh Lord, oh Lord, Joyce, or oh Lord, Tom, Lord, Lord, save Tom, Lord, help Tom, or, or Joyce, or, that this kind of thing may create a kind of situation where the enemy would take advantage of that and be drawn into that kind of uh, environment for his uh, accusation and attack. So I'll start with that. Maybe I'll leave it to the other brothers, maybe Chris or Brother Ron to add to that. Hmm. Actually, this is quite a full response I just would like you to contribute a little bit. And that is, let's consider what is real prayer? Real prayer does not originate with us. It originates with the interceding Christ on the throne and the spirit within us. 
So when we are inclined to pray about a person that we love, we care for, we should first stop. Because when we pray in the natural life, Tom made a very good point. Somehow, the demons, the evil spirits that are part of Satan's kingdom, they become alert to this. The enemy is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And we do not want unintentionally to make someone vulnerable to the enemy's attack by praying in a natural way. And so we should, in principle, there's not a method. We come to the Lord to say, Lord, I'd like to bring to you this situation for the sake of your body. The Lord, we know from Hebrews 7, is praying, interceding for us day and night. How is he praying for our sister Joyce? I believe he's praying for her with the body in view, the kingdom in view, the church in view. And it's not that we use certain kind of words, it's in our being we realize we are praying for this person in the body, for the body, with the body, as a member of the body, and the life in the body is activated. And so, but the, the basic thing, and I'm gonna stop here, is that we shouldn't think that we're free to pray according to our loving and caring feelings for anybody. The Lord does not consider that as prayer. Those are prayers that are not prayers. We need to stop, turn our being to the Lord, open to the Lord, seek him and respond to the inner sense he gives us and pray in the spirit of the body. Then the Lord will supply what this member needs and this member and all of us will be protected. Yeah, I really, I don't really think I have anything to add. I appreciated both Tom's portion and what Brother Ron added. So I think we're okay. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, okay, I have, uh, this one is actually, I'm going to ask Brother Ron this question. Um, I have often heard saints say that we are taking the ground in a city and that this, and this somewhat confuses me. Saints have been meeting there in the past and have not been having, but just have not been having a table meeting. Can you please explain to us what actually happens and changes in the spiritual realm when we have one of these ground taking meetings? And is there any scriptural basis for this type of a meeting? Okay, let's begin with the Lord's and the Apostles' teaching in the New Testament. The Lord said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. In chapter 18, he said, tell it to the church. In Revelation 1, the Lord himself is speaking, saying, send these this scroll to the seven churches. 
Then he names seven cities. Then when he begins to speak to the messenger in each church, he says to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. So it's very clear in the New Testament, the church, the body of Christ is uniquely one. And the body is the source of all the local churches because a local church is the expression of the body with its oneness in a locality. We use the expression, the ground of oneness, in an attempt to uh, define the truth that there's a basis upon which the church meets. That is the oneness of the body expressed locally. Now, we need to look at this from the perspective of the Lord's recovery. So much truth concerning the church has been lost. Instead of what the church is building, a huge religious organization in various ways has been on the earth. The meeting of one church in one city has been abandoned. So the Lord must have a recovery. And that recovery involves a return to what the Lord established in the beginning. Now, a picture from the Old Testament, because the history of Israel portrays us. When Babylon, the army of Babylon destroyed the temple, took many of the people to Babylon. Then there was a time when the 70 years had been fulfilled, as Jeremiah prophesied, the call to return to Jerusalem to build the temple and then later to build the city. That was a return to the designated place. And only on that place could the house of God be built. Now in the Lord's recovery, this picture is being fulfilled. There are genuine, precious, beloved Christians all over the earth, meeting in various ways. But we, we use the expression, take the ground, when through fellowship in the body and among the co-workers involved, the decision is made that in a particular city, there has not been a genuine expression of the body of Christ. So now is the time for the church here to be reestablished. And in order to do this, we must realize we are meeting on the ground of the oneness of the body of Christ. So the phrase taking the ground refers to our recovering this. Yeah from this point on meeting on this basis yes now a little comment and then i'll pass the baton on uh 
when you say, is there any basis for this kind of meeting in the Bible? We have to be somewhat careful when we say, is this expression in the Bible? Well, the word, uh, the Trinity is not mentioned there. There are a lot of terms that express the truth in the word that are not literally there. But we have the principle of the oneness of the universal church and the oneness of the local church. We have a picture of the recovery of the lost oneness and of a return. And so there's a difference between believers being in a city and they meet together. We have to ask sincerely in fellowship, on what basis are you meeting? Well, we're just meeting with any believers. But we need to be able to say, we are meeting here as the church. The church in, okay, maybe I'm quasi-prophesying a little, a church in Freiburg. There once was one. A church in Freiburg. Amen. That we're not just Christians here meeting in one another's homes. We want the church to be built up here. So now, in the spirit of the body, we're having a meeting by which we are declaring this. So this is what we're doing when we say we're taking the ground. We're recovering the God-ordained standing to establish a church. Amen. Take this ground for two reasons that are really two parts of one reason. First, we do this for the Lord in obedience to his word, to Christ as the head. And also we do this for all the believers in this locality. Wherever they are, whether they would agree with us or meet with us, it doesn't matter. We are not exclusive. We are taking this standing for all the believers here you can come to the Lord's table meeting. It's the Lord's table. Right. We will not examine you because we are, the foundation has been laid on the ground of oneness. Amen. I see this happen more and more all over Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Hungary, Greece, on and on it goes. Amen. Amen. Okay. I pass the baton. I'd like to hear from Chris. Chris, go ahead. You're muted, Chris. Yeah, sorry, I just figured that out. Um, thanks, Tom. Um, I really appreciate uh, that response. And particularly, would just like to underscore this, this matter of uh, recovery. Yes. You know, and in... In Acts, where we see uh, Paul dispatching this one or that one, Timothy or Titus, or, you know, to, to go to such a city and establish a church, as Ron said, we don't, that, that terminology, take the ground, was not used. But in principle, the thought of retaking what had been lost was not among them, because they were doing it according to what God ordained in the very first um, order. So they weren't recovering. They weren't establishing. 
we're in a much different position now. We are, we've been called to come back and take this ground that has been usurped by the, the, the one whose very nature is to divide and separate God's people. Amen. So, you know, we use this, actually, we use this quite a bit, Ron, in, in Europe when we're speaking and sharing with our young people. And many times we play a clip of yours where you bring this out with, with quite a bit of feeling and passion. And that is the need of the Lord to establish beachheads on this continent Amen. at this particular hour. Right, right. Because that man of lawlessness, that, that, that magnanimous, charismatic one that Tom talked about, when, when this is revealed, we, we have good cause to believe it will take place in Europe. Yeah. And before the Lord comes, for him to have this kind of testimony of the oneness of the body of Christ, city by city by city, is not insignificant. And it warrants, as we're led by him in our fellowship and prayer with the church, with the other churches, with this time, um, Ron said, with the co-workers, it warrants a kind of a particular meeting sometimes. We had one a year and a half ago or 19 months ago in Munich. I believe, I believe the heavens paid attention. Yes. Yes. We had one less than a year ago, uh, just at the beginning of this year, about the time the corona thing hit, hit, uh, we had a similar meeting in Hamburg. I believe the heavens were, were paying much attention. And there was a feeling in the saints. It wasn't just a few so-called leading brothers who made a decision, we need to do something special. No, it was initiated in the spirit. It was manifested in the prayer and the fellowship. And there was a feeling, this is a significant city. We are standing here to take this ground, return it to the Lord for his building up, for the building of this church that he talked about, like Ron said in, in, in Matthew 16. That's the universal church in Matthew 16, but it's built up city by city on the local ground that has been claimed by those saints who have been brought along and matured and nurtured to come to that point where they just know it's time. And I think, Tom, that's the feeling we've had, right? Like in the few places that the Lord has added in the last couple of years here, yep. there's just been a feeling in our spirit. It's time. Yes. It's time. It's Amen. like giving birth. It's time for this one to come forth. Amen. Amen. You know, I'll just add just a smidge, and I hope I don't go off the rails here. But Ron mentioned there's two two parties. The Lord, we're doing this for the Lord. We're doing this for the saints. I also believe that we're making an announcement to the enemy. Yeah. Amen. Yes. That. Yes. We're here. The Lord's testimony is here. Yeah. And um, when you participate in one of these kind of meetings, it's a real victorious gathering together. And uh, you know, one place that didn't Chris didn't mention was Bielefeld, which was just a few months prior to Hamburg. Right. Last year, two new churches raised up here in Germany, recovered uh, the ground being recovered. And the Lord's testimony established, and boy, we look forward every year we could have 
More churches being raised up by saints that want to stand on the ground and recover the Lord's testimony in Europe. Amen. Amen. So, Ron, we've got some cities for you to add to your list. Uh, Amen. Uh, with with Freiburg on it. We, that's certainly on our list, but Tom and I can text you a, a message. We'll give you four or five more to pray for. Does that include Heidelberg? It does, yes. Yeah. And Tübingen. I'm in. That's my attempt. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back in here and um, this also has to do with the Lord's testimony. And it has to do uh, well this question has Brother Ron's name in it, so I, I think it's gonna start with Brother Ron. Um this says, Brother Ron, we have heard in your testimony that you came into the church in San Francisco and didn't care what the ethnicity of the saints there were, as long as it was the church. I believe the point you are trying to make is that we should seek what the Lord wants and not our own personal preference. Could you please clarify for us what our attitude should be in light of Matthew 24, 14, in order to bring the Lord back, does he not need the ethnos? Does he need? Does, doesn't he need the ethnos of that nation and city to have the testimony he desires? And just, just to clarify, the, the Greek word uh, for nation in Matthew 24, 14 is ethnos, where we get the word ethnicity. So that's... Right. Where this, <clears throat> yeah, let's begin with God. God is no respecter of persons. Okay. Then we know from the commission to given to the Apostle Paul, and actually prior to that, the commission given to the Apostles at the end of Matthew was a disciple, the whole earth, the whole earth, yeah. this yeah. the commission. And in Revelation, there's a strong emphasis, such as in chapter five, where the Lord has gathered people from every part of the earth. Yeah. You Contemporary terminology from all races, all nations, all social classes, yeah. all skin colors, all language groups, whatever it is. The New Jerusalem has 12 gates. It's open in every direction. This is the Lord's heart. And we are commissioned in Matthew 24, 14 to announce the gospel of the kingdom, specifically the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations. And so something needs to happen inside of us experientially that the God who is no respecter of persons in Christ as the is living in us. And we can honestly say we are no respecter of persons. 
We want this gospel of the kingdom to reach every social group, every race, every country. This is God's heart. Amen. And in the United States, and I'm so happy that in the face of those that are emphasizing division, there are brothers that are learning how to preach the gospel to all the nations to testify to what had been the minority groups. Now we're all minority groups, and I'm happy with that. But then we have to have in front of us, God is not after a kind of spiritual United Nations with all kinds of people all together, uh, and here we are, and we hold on to the distinctions in our ethnicity. But God created differences will remain forever. God did this deliberately. So we need to take a major step in the light of Colossians 3, 10, and 11, that the church, which is the body of Christ, is also the one corporate new man. And in the new man, there's no Deutschland. There's no USA. There's no UK. There's no China. It's just not here. But Christ is all. That is, he really becomes us. And he is in all, meaning we're still here, and he's in us. Now, when I came into the church in San Francisco, I was... I'm not trying to act humble. This is just a fact. I had quite a theological education, but in terms of Christ's life, I was in kindergarten. I came into the church as a learner, but the Lord had prepared me somewhat in the years to come by giving me much close interactive contact with human beings of all kinds of races and nationalities and social classes. So it wasn't a matter of preference. It's a matter of realizing I do not care what ethnic group, what racial group, what social class is here. I only want to know, is this the church? Then I'm here. I don't care if now there are five Caucasian Americans making up 2% of the church. I don't care. I just want to be in the church. And then eventually I learned through the ministry, whoa, we're a new creation. And we're announcing the gospel without preference, without partiality, without bias or prejudice to the whole earth because this is the heart of our God. And I'm looking forward to some kind of time when we're all together. <laughs> we're all together, finally. Yes. We have, outwardly, the people look different because God created us different. They have different 
to have a fuller manifestation of himself, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. Yeah, obviously I've got a lot of feeling about this. I hope this contributes to your question. And now I'm passing the ball. Looking at Chris, so I guess it goes to him. I was looking at Tom. <laughs> uh, I'll just make a quick comment. I think you just said it, Ron, exactly. We, we are not here for this race or that race. As you said, God is not a respecter of persons. Of course, we, we're here in Germany. We're, we're, we're desperate that uh, the gospel would reach the typical local native German people and that there would be a response. But, you know, um, all we can do, as Paul said, is plant and then trust someone else to water. And then we must look to God to give the growth. Um, and, I, it's, and it is happening. It is happening. Of course, it's slower than we would like. But it was interesting. Uh, maybe, I don't know, Tom, you probably remember better than I, maybe six or eight months ago when we were together with some of the brothers from Germany, we touched this matter. And you found a marvelous bit of ministry yeah. Um, because, you know, these are a lot of these are dear local uh, native German brothers and they look at uh, Tom and I and many others that are here who come from America and quite a few that come from the Far East. And, and there's a little, you could tell, you know, there's a little feeling there like, oh man, what kind of church life is this? I got all these Americans, we got all these Asians. What about the Germans? And then, uh, I shouldn't steal your thunder, Tom, because you found that ministry, but let me just summarize it quick, then you can finish the story. And, and what the ministry was, was a, an account of the establishment of the, church, the first church, which is the church in Jerusalem. And if you go back through the biblical account, uh, it, it, it works out that virtually all of those who were in that church, that, that establishing of the first church on the earth in Jerusalem, from the day of Pentecost and the days following, it was very clear that they were almost all immigrants. There were precious few of native Jerusalemites. Now, of course, over time, there became a Jerusalem, Jerusalemite uh, component to the church, and that's the Lord's sovereign arrangement. But saints, that was so poignant to me that if the Lord could establish the first church mainly with immigrants and then draw in the local ones, why would we be ashamed of this pattern today? So I just uh, would say this much and give it to Tom. Yeah, it was uh, the portion in Acts chapter 1 and 2 where the, uh, the angel is speaking to the disciples as, uh, as the Lord is ascending, he calls them men of Galilee. And eventually the question was, if the Lord was going to establish a church with Galileans, why wouldn't he establish that church in Galilee? But what he did is he had to get them out of their background, out of their uh, connections, and they migrated. Eventually, the Galileans, the men of Galilee, became the church, it, you know, the start of the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts 13 in Antioch, you have a similar situation where you have uh, 
you have these five leading ones from five different places, uh, from Africa, from Rome, from uh, some were Jews, some were all these different kind of nationalities. And so to think that a church should be raised up with local people is not necessarily the model. We always pray and hope that the Lord could gain local, the local people for the local testimony. But I'm not, I, I'm not stuck on this anymore personally. I just, uh, I've just seen too much um, of the Lord's blessing and the Lord's move with various kinds of people. Actually, I was in a meeting this morning with 40 or so uh, Farsi-speaking dear ones from country X. And uh, we would love to have 40 brand, they're all brand new believers. They're all new believers. Some, I, I even prayed with one today to receive the Lord. It was amazing to me. Um, and they're so hungry and so receptive and so simple to just hear the word. So, and they have friends, they all have friends. And I could just see this growing and growing. Well, we can't say, well, no, we're in Germany. Sorry, uh, uh, we're not gonna take care of you because you're not German. So like Chris said, the, we'll sow the seed, the Lord sends the rain and, and we're gonna reap. And if the testimony in, in Dusseldorf is kind of out of proportion, uh, with uh, local people, we're not concerned about that at all. Anyway, I'll stop. I'll stop with that. Thank you, brothers. Uh, we're uh, we just have we actually just have three questions left, but I, I think we're doing pretty well on time. So let me. Um, I'll direct this uh, actually to Brother Tom to start out. And the question is this, uh, I'm a 35 year old single sister in the church life and I have a strong desire to be married. I have been advised in the past not to approach leading brothers about single brothers. They have said it's only appropriate for brothers to approach leading brothers about sisters, not the other way around. I'm bothered by this and feel single brothers in the church life are often hesitant and passive about inquiring about sisters and marriage in general, leaving sisters like myself feeling helpless, frustrated, and waiting. Is this how it should be? Are brothers always the ones who should approach leading brothers? Is it inappropriate for sisters to do so? Oh, simple answer. In fact, when I saw this question, I had a little bit of a reaction within me no, I, I think the, the sisters should fellowship with the brothers. I, I don't think there's anything that they shouldn't open up to the brothers. That if they have a, a desire to be married and they have some interest in a, in a, in a brother, a single brother, and they're, they're single. Uh, I've had many, many uh, appointments like this, and I'm more than happy to pray and fellowship with uh, the uh, single sisters. I... Uh, I've, I've had a number of these kind of appointments and I, and I, I can't say I really truly understand, but I surely feel the, uh, the, the sympathy within me for 
some who are in this kind of situation. And surely you're, you're on my heart and in my prayers that the Lord would yoke you together with a good brother uh, as a match for you to run together with, pursue with. And um, to answer your question, um, no, it's not just the brothers. It might be that we rely on the single brothers to initiate a courtship, uh, but I would even take that uh, to an extreme. Uh, I've participated in situations where sisters have come to me having some feeling for a brother and without disclosing that the sister was initiating that, I. I opened it up to the brother. The brother received it, prayed, responded, and uh, they're married. Um, I don't. I don't have any problem. I don't see any problem uh, with even the sisters uh, inquiring to this extent. And I don't have a problem even approaching a brother on behalf of a sister who has some interest or feeling in a certain way. It's always risky. I mean, even for the brothers to approach a sister is risky. And sometimes the brothers, they're not passive. They're just scaredy cats. And they don't want to get down. Uh, and so the sisters, you know, they our feeling is, of course, the sisters need covering. And we don't want them to, to be seen in a bad light uh, as pursuing uh, something maybe that seems inappropriate. So we'll do everything we can to cover uh, the sisters, but I don't have any problem at all. Uh, sisters fellowshipping with the brothers, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know how the other brothers want to respond. But call me if you need to. <laughs> Brother Ron, go ahead. I, I fully agree with every point uh, that. A sister should be able to go to a leading brother and open this up. She is not overstepping being a female, a woman. She's not walking up to the brother after a meeting and asking him to go out for coffee. She's just bringing her feeling to a brother she trusts and often I've had the same experience as Tom and and Chris will speak for himself, but I'm pretty sure he's had the same experience that it, it opens the way for a brother, you know, that here's a sister who has an interest has been praying and, and so uh, it's hard. I think it's, it's harder for sisters to stay in the Lord's recovery single waiting on brothers. And so if they seek fellowship, it should be graciously received. Now I want to fire a bullet, not at a person, but at the small mind. And I hope this word eventually will go out to any leading brothers. Your concept is narrow, it's small. It doesn't match the feeling of the body. Please allow the Lord to adjust your concept. 
so that otherwise your shepherding capacity will be very much limited. That there's a lot of experience in the body you can draw from, you can learn from, but please drop this narrow view. Okay, I'm done. I, I have nothing but full agreement with my the brother on my right and the brother on my left. And yes, I've had those same appointments and the same outcome. And sometimes the outcome is not so not glorious, doesn't have that ending, Tom. But, you know, and I'm faithful to tell the sister, whether it's a brother or a sister that approaches me, you know, with this with this matter, I tell them, you know, you have to be ready. You have to be prepared for what the Lord is going to bring. It may be exactly what you want. It may be exactly what you need, and those two may not be the same thing sometimes. So just be prepared. But I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy, I'm happy to, to to fellowship and especially to pray. And I have to join. I know Tom and Ron. I've talked to both of them about this. We have a lot of feeling for these dear sisters that are in this category, and we pray much that the Lord would, you know, would come in in in, in a gra most gracious, loving way and just take care, however that would be. Amen. Whether he becomes, manifests himself in these sisters to, to satisfy every longing and need they may ever have, or whether he has this brother, but that are, is very much in our heart. I'm very much touched by the sisters in this situation. Tom, I, I'm not sure I completely agree. I think a lot of the brothers are too passive, sorry. <laughs> and a lot of them are probably scaredy cats. They're scared to death. And I like to stir them up and wake them up sometimes. But anyway, that's just me. But uh, yeah, I fully amen the brothers. Yeah, I just have one word to the single brothers. Be a man. Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Scriptural. Thank you. <laughs> amen. <clears throat> so, uh, thank you. Thank you, brothers. Uh, I'm going to go on to the next question, and I'll direct this first to Brother Chris. Uh, this comes from a young married sister uh, with a baby. So she says, uh, Dear Saints, I'm a young married sister with a baby. I work part-time and my husband works full-time. I would say from the beginning of our marriage, we have been practically been absolute for the church life attending any and every meeting or conference that we can. The last few months in these restrictions, I have felt so restful. I have been able to shepherd young people in small groups, visit saints one-on-one, -on -one, and I've been with my family, and it's been so sweet and normal. I realize now that the church life, the way we were living it, was very hard on me and our family life extra meetings, weekend gatherings that would be announced because there was something to, uh, because something became something to dread because we were already tired. And I feel we did so much out of a sense of obligation rather than with joy. I thought this was just me, but I was talking with another sister I look up to and she has the same experience. Part of me dreads returning to quote unquote normal in terms of the church life. How can we practically, when the restrictions are lifted, live a day-to-day -day church life without falling into religion 
and being and doing so many things out of a feeling of obligation or responsibility? How do we keep from getting burned out? And if the church life becomes this way again, does it really produce life? Uh, well, I, I think, I honestly, I think we can all empathize with this sister to a degree. Um, I think many, probably all of us have gone through spells where we have fallen into a routine church life, a routine serving, and we've lost the freshness. We've lost that, uh, that real touch with the Lord and just fallen into routine. Yeah, and you were obviously, that's where you were when this whole thing descended. And just by virtue of the environment, none of us can have been serving in a routine way these past few months because this was never our routine. None of us had this routine. So you've discovered, you've rediscovered the Lord in a sense. Um, and I mean, there are areas in, in, my, in my experience of the Lord, my walk with the Lord and in my serving that I, I have to say, faith, honestly, I too have rediscovered him in some areas during this time. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I'm afraid to go back. Uh, what it means is those, that freshness that has become, that has been renewed in me in those areas, I want to sustain that wherever the Lord takes us next. Uh, don't go back, to, don't automatically go back to what you just are sure is going to be a routine. Serve in the same spirit, in the same freshness, in the same enjoyment that you're currently experiencing in these limited conditions. Now, I'm not necessarily saying either that you should immediately go back and pick up everything that you were doing. It could be you were, you were doing too much. It could be the Lord sovereignly used this for you to bring you to a halt, to bring you to a stop. You know, uh, it's a spiritual reality. It's not, this is not an original to me, but this is a lesson we all have to learn. And it's simply, I, I, I may misstate it, one of the brothers could correct me, but correct it. But the point is, if you can't stop your work for the Lord, you're not qualified to start working for the Lord. And sometimes we get so, so just responding to externals. This needs to be done. That needs to be done. This person needs to be visited. That meeting needs to be gone to. That where's the Lord? I don't know, man. I, for, I left him a long time ago. I'm just doing, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, it's the Lord's mercy to come in then with a pandemic, if that's what it takes, to get us to stop and reconnect with him. And then I would just say one more thing. Um, and don't think that this new situation we're in can't also become a routine and a religion. And you could not get burned out with this just because it's different doesn't mean it's necessarily the Lord and the spirit. No, we have to find the Lord. We have to find the spirit. We have to find that supply, that grace, 
that touch with him, no matter what circumstance he puts us in, to either live the church life or to carry on in our serving life. So dear sister, listen, I know you've got a load. You've got a little one probably you're holding right now who's, who's not easy and, and a husband who's probably not easy and brothers in your locality, they're not easy and all kinds of situations. But sister, just you, you found him. You found him again in this. Just thank him and cling to him, cleave to him, like Mary said. And however the Lord leads us on in the next stage, we, we, just, we just have to exercise to stay in that kind of living, fresh reality. Amen. That's, that's all I can offer. You know, my wife and I had a little discussion before we got on today, because we'd gotten a preview of some of these questions. And uh, this one uh, was kind of an interesting discussion I had with, with Joyce because um, it brought out a lot of feeling in her, uh, e even about our life uh, in the earlier years. And, uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a danger that we, we feel that our spiritual value or what pleases the Lord the most is our doing much for him that our faithfulness and taking care of the young people, serving on the campus, taking care of the children's work. And so we're just running here and there. And of course the brothers appreciate us that much, so much because we're so faithful and responsible, but we will come to a point where we are dry and empty and exhausted and many times the saints will blame the church or blame the Lord for that when actually uh, it wasn't the Lord and it wasn't the church. In the messages for the workings given to the working saints, uh, Brother Lee encouraged us to measure out our capacity, our time, and our strength. As, as a husband, I have a responsibility with my wife, my children, to take care of them, to provide for them. And uh, best advice is just you you and your, your husband, you and your wife, fellowship and decide how you want to serve the Lord in the church life. Uh, I, you know, we all should participate in the Lord's table, of course, the prayer meeting, a group meeting. But beyond that, some area of service, sure. But we shouldn't spend seven nights or seven days a week running here and there uh, trying to please the Lord or the brothers, gaining our sense of value from the amount of work we can produce. Amen. Uh, I would offer some footnotes to this, uh, beginning with if I remember correctly, the very end of this very well-worded question yeah. about being burned out. Yeah. We all know about the burning bush, <coughs> Exodus 3. Yeah. Yeah. What captured Moses' attention was not that a bush was burning, 
He had seen spontaneous combustion many times. He had 40 years. <coughs> but what it captured his attention was the fire didn't go out. And we are the bush. And God is the fire. And the reason any one of us, and I'll give you an example of my own history decades ago, we are burned out is because we're doing everything by our natural energy and our life. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, it's just a matter of time when everyone will be burned out. And I was in this situation again, it's some decades ago, but not at the very beginning. And the, the few times where I've written any lines of poetry, it's usually been in under intense pressure. And I just blurted out one day, my soul is the crater of an extinct volcano, empty, dark and cold. And the Lord showed me, you've been laboring, laboring for something I measured out to you, plus other things. And now the Lord covers me to say, and I'm much older than I was then and much more active, even under these kind of limits. Can't fly to Germany, so I Zoom there, right? Sure. Nothing can burn me out now, nothing. Why do I say that? There are two main reasons. One reason is I'm learning, I'm still learning. The fire, the energy is the triune God in Christ as the spirit in my spirit. But I also urgently need something else. And I share this with much feeling. I became a widower four years ago. The Lord gave me his choice my wife, Tanya, without her, I don't think I would be alive. It's not just the fire alone. It's just that someone is here to graciously limit me. We need to walk. You need to rest. I'm, prepar I'm preparing this. You'll need so much of that. And then along with those two things was also a matter of truth that became real to me. And that is in serving the Lord. Do not be governed by need. The need is endless. It's mm. endless. Yes. Yeah. Never met. Rather, we are governed by the Lord in our spirit. Right. And this governing matches 
what God has arranged for us in our human life, both as in the old creation and in the new creation. And that is, when the man and the woman were thrust out of the garden, the man had to work. And the woman, once the child is born, we're all living restriction. This is ordained by God. And so, my sister, do not feel guilty when you say, we can't do this. We're not able to do this. Learn to say no in the spirit. Learn to say yes to please people, to fear people. Just realize, you know, uh, this is beyond the measure that I have. If the brothers understand, let them understand. If they don't, then, then they don't. I'm not going to be swayed by that. Brother Lee himself, I remember being in a co-workers meeting when he strongly, not advised us, charged us. I would even say commanded us. He said, you must reserve one evening a week for your family. And just one other thing, if I can add this, again, this goes back a long time. You know, when I came into the church life, I learned there's a world and I don't want to be worldly and I had a proper dealing with the world and then Along with everybody else, I became rather religious and legal about things. And a brother, one of the elders, he gave a message. In the message, he said, vacations are worldly and we're not worldly. <laughs> so I decided I don't want to be worldly. So I'm not going to take a vacation. If I take a vacation, saints will think I'm worldly. So here I am in Anaheim with three small children. And a co-worker comes to me and says, Ron, you need to take some time off and do something with your family. And I couldn't respond. I didn't reject. I couldn't respond. He came again, and then I realized, I'm going to do this. So I took everybody down to San Diego, the south of California, and we went to SeaWorld to see the the whales and the penguins, and we went to the wild animal park. And now my, they range from 46 to 52 in age. They still know the family chant, eight to five, to see world drive, to see the fish that are alive and the whale that will dive. And then I noticed my daughter wrote, your teacher asked her to write what you did during the summer. And she said, described how she went to San Diego. I realize I'm forming memories. And from that time on, three things. One is a proper human limitation on all my activity. Number two, family time and family with each child alone. Right. Three, husband and wife get away for two days or so alone. 
all this is illustrating. I'm not trying to write my biography here. I'm just saying, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of being human. We are living right. a finally human life. Amen. Meditations with its sufferings and will its and with its delights. Amen. Okay. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Uh, we just have one last question, uh, and uh, so the the question is this. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll start out by directing this to Brother Ron. Uh, a lot has happened over the past five months. A lot has changed. Regardless of status, uh, whether single, married, with young kids or older kids, this new environment has been challenging. Many pressures we haven't experienced before, or we haven't experienced them as intensely. At the same time, it seems that the Lord's return may not be far off. We know from the word that as the Lord's return draws near, the enemy's wearing out tactics will increase. Lawlessness will be multiplied and the love of many believers will grow cold. That was theoretical to me until this pandemic and the resulting lockdown. I can see now and have experienced to some extent that it is all too possible for this to happen. I don't want it to happen, but the environment we find ourselves in makes me wonder how my spouse and I can avoid it. How can we, particularly those of us living in Europe and the Middle East in the part of the world that will be the geographic center of antichrist activity, how can we respond to the enemy's attack and actually become the people the Lord needs to bring him back? Okay, we, now we, this brings us into the, the realm of spiritual warfare and uh, our time is limited. Uh, a few things. The first is, as we're in, we're all of us in this environment, we need to have a spirit of prayer like this. Lord, I don't understand why this is happening, but I don't want to pass through this in vain. Lord, Gain what you want, what you want in me personally and in all the saints and all the churches all over the earth. Gain what you want. Lord, even concerning the unsaved people, the four horses are running. We're seeing three of the horses running of death of war, of economic distress. Another point regarding the wearing out tactics of the enemy, again, this requires really a whole message. Not that I'm, I have it in me now, but 
we, we need to recognize how he does this. Um, he has some understanding of our soul. So we need to know how to take care of our entire being, spirit, soul, and body. We need to realize without any kind of religious guilt, I need rest. I need a break. I, I need a hobby. Uh, I need to take care of my health in this matter. And also, I need to realize more desperately, may the Lord put this into the spirit of so many saints, I really desperately want to know the body and live in the body. And the, the armor is on the body. Yeah, yeah. And when I'm in the body, this is where I'm safe, where I'm protected. And also, I would just add two other points in about 45 seconds. I don't know why I said 45. It just comes up. That is a daily prayer. I've had for, I learned it from Brother Lee. Beyond starting the day, Lord, for today, please supply me with today's portion of grace. I'd like to testify to you, my brothers and sisters. His grace is sufficient for me. Amen. It's sufficient in any kind of situation. Amen. And then also on the personal side, we need to experience more and more, as Paul longed for, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And when we have all of these elements gradually, organically converging, it's spirit, soul, and body. We have a wonderful verse, I'm beyond 45 seconds, a wonderful verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, the God of peace, he will preserve us, spirit, soul, and body. Just present yourself, pray to be preserved. Pray that simple prayer that the Lord taught us. Keep us from the evil one. Protect me. Hide me in the body. And I do believe all of these bountiful supply from the spirit and in the body will enable every one of us, no matter what our circumstances are, Eventually, we will be able to say, I fought the good fight. I kept the faith. I finished the course. Amen. 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 Tom, you want to go? Well, you know, I fully agree with Brother Ron that the wearing out tactics of the enemy, this touches spiritual warfare. And we don't deal with this alone or by ourselves. This is all together something we deal with in the body. Um, there's a realization within me, and this is like a testimony 
brothers and sisters, young people, that when we have the ministry that comes to us through the seven feasts, the trainings, the conferences, and these things, that it is the Lord's words to his body. I believe that the messages that are released, for example, in the recent training are like stepping stones. They're like leading us and guiding us how to face things, how to experience things, what we should focus on, what our attention should be set upon. As I was listening to this question, I, I just thought of the shepherd and overseer of our souls, you know, from message 11, and how the Lord knows. He knows what we can handle. He knows what we can take. And I think we're all feeling that we're under this kind of wearing out tactic of the evil one, the enemy. But there was another portion that came out in the training, and uh, I also quickly found this in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in Jehovah and whose trust Jehovah is. I love that. Oh, I love that. And he will be like a tree transplanted beside water, sends out its roots by a stream. And he will not be afraid when heat comes, for its leaves remain flourishing, and it will not be anxious in the year of drought, and will not cease to bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, I, I just feel like, as a kind of a personal uh, testimony, if I don't have my, my time with the Lord to open myself up to him, to love him, contact him, I get worn out. I get overwhelmed. I get, I, I'm short. I know I'm short of supply, short of strength. And so sometimes it's very, it's even desperate to, to have that time. And the Lord knows many times during those times, I'm just saying, Lord, I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know what to ask for because I don't know how to fix this situation or how to help that saint or even what it is that I need. But I love you and I'm coming to you. And this is how, this is how I live. This is how I, how I live. I, I just, and Jehovah is becoming my trust. <laughs> I'm becoming him. He's becoming me. I just, I just love this. Anyway, we all could be like that tree transplanted by the water. We're not afraid, not afraid of the heat not afraid of drought. We just, we're in the body. We're, we're with the saints. We're listening, receiving the Lord's up-to-date speaking, and it's getting worked into us, and we're going on until he comes. Amen. Um, I don't know that I feel able to add I'm just have to make one, one point that both Ron and Tom made. 
Um, I, I think of the things the Lord has, uh, <clears throat> has revealed or brought, brought me through during these past five months. Um, the most significant uh, has been my realization of my utter, absolute dependence on the body. I have no way to withstand him, the evil one, by myself. I am just not that strong. And you know, we grow up, especially brothers, this is our situation. You know, there's still a kind of a he-man uh, impetus in all of us. And as a he-man, the last thing you want to do is uh, reveal your vulnerability or your weakness especially to another man, another brother. And when I have gotten worn out, I have found more than ever before my brothers. Brothers, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling today. I'm worn out today. I'm not sure I can make it through this two-hour meeting. And you know what? There's not one judgmental thought, not one, you just need to get with it, brother, comment. Not one, just turn to your spirit, brother. What's wrong with you? No. <laughs> I fight. Yeah, I've been there too. It's okay. You're okay. We're going to get through. And then by the Lord's mercy, he has raised up just a couple, two or three, well, three particularly, for me to daily, I mean daily, pray with. And there's nothing we won't pray for. And there's nothing we won't bring to the Lord. And even with some of the brothers that I've been placed here with, of course, one of them's on the panel tonight, and another one is also on the panel tonight that I'm not physically with anymore, but we were together for 20 years, just about 50 feet apart, our offices. At times, we get attacked by something that's intensely personal. And we tend to just hunker down and fight it on our own. But, saints, the freedom, the victory, the deliverance is in the body and trusting the Lord in those ones he has placed us with even more than my own sense right now in my confused state of what's happening. So I'm just grateful to the Lord. I'm deeply, deeply grateful to these brothers. They both know how much I love them and pray for them. And know they pray and support and sustain me. So saints, yeah, he's, he's on the attack. He's exceedingly aggressive these days. May that blow up in his face as it always has. From the first century church to this hour, the more fierce he fights, the more we flee to the Lord and increasingly to one another. And the church is being built that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. 
You know, I think I think I'd like to add one more, just a little something. I I think we need to make this into a framed quote. Nothing can burn me out now. <laughs> I said that I thought, man, I need to put that up on my on my computer or something. You're becoming God in life and nature. <laughs> Nothing can consume God. Oh, amen. Amen. We're just a bunch of bushes. That's right. We've all got the flame in us. Amen. And may we say to them, I don't know who you are, my younger brothers and sisters, but we love you. Yeah. We want the fire to be burning in you. Yeah. Because we're in a relay race. And uh, in a relay race, you have the anchor man who was given the baton in a, in a lovely way, according to their training. And it may be either all of us are the anchor man, but if some of us are just too far ahead of you, humanly speaking, you may be the anchor man. Yeah. Yeah. We are first pouring out our whole being yeah. to the Lord as a drink offering. Amen. In him, we are pouring out so much has been wrought into us, into you, because you are the future. And we believe we're entering close to the consummation of the age. And I just add this. Brothers who would be involved and saints who eventually all be involved, the, the upcoming elders training will involve caring for the saints caring for the church in light of the consummation of the age, coming of the Lord. Amen. These months have given all of us a new perspective. Our Lord is coming. Amen. Every day counts. Amen. Day by day. So my beloved brothers and sisters, the Lord the processing consummated triune God bless every one of you Amen. every way at every time in every place Amen. in every situation from now until we all are raptured together as the first fruits Amen. to the throne of God and parousia begins. Amen. Amen.